A desperate surge. No sign of the four-year-old. An issue. We hold great concerns. Cleo was taken. 18 days of asking, where is Cleo? What's your name, sweetheart? My name is Cleo. Eight days since Cleo's disappearance, authorities turned the focus of their attention from a search to a criminal investigation. Searching the fence line for fingerprints, forensics examining the family home of four-year-old Cleo Smith. Meanwhile, in a country town a thousand kilometres away, Cleo's disappearance stirs up painful memories of another mystery disappearance. I'm Natalie Bongiolo. Also joining us today is investigative journalist Kristen Shorten, forensic anthropologist and criminologist Xanthi Mallet, from the town of Collie, Mick Murray, and reporter at the West, Brianna Dugan. Brianna, we heard in that news clip just a moment ago that forensics arrived at Cleo's family home on Saturday 23rd. Can you describe what you could see them doing there? Yeah, so they rocked up in their vans and they were spraying a green chemical around the perimeter and fence line of the house and it was to see if anyone was stalking Cleo up to the months, days, weeks since she was taken. What did that whole scene look like? So they were in their full, they call it Smurf gear, dressed up with boots and stuff on. There was maybe eight of them, I'd say. It was pretty intense scene because you couldn't get too close, obviously. They were spraying the stuff all around the house, taking photos, going up to it with lights and stuff. Obviously, the media were there, but were locals standing and watching? And what were they sort of saying? Yeah, a few people came out of their houses to come and have a look because obviously we were there as well filming and stuff. Most people were still just in shock about what had happened. It was still early days. No one at this point thought it could have been the parents. So they were like, oh, it's just devastating. We know the family. We know Cleo. It's really upsetting. And what were police saying to journalists about the fact that they were there and forensics were at the house? What were they telling you about why they were doing that? So I got a call from police media, I think, within five minutes of being at that house. And it was really just to reiterate the fact that the parents had nothing to do with this. It was standard forensic protocol and just to make sure that that's what we put in our stories, that the family had nothing to do with They were not suspects. Yeah, you can understand they would be concerned about how the public might interpret what was going on there. And as we've seen in previous missing persons cases, forensic examination of a home is par for the course. Police say Cleo's parents are not their target. Forensics sent here to firm up a growing suspicion Cleo was taken. Kristen, we understand missing child posters and pictures of Cleo are plastered far and wide, and there's some really big find Cleo groups are forming as well. Yeah, now, as this desperate search for Cleo continued into days, you know, 8, 9 and 10, missing child posters were being plastered all across the state as the public tried to help police find answers and generate leads. So, for example, in Port Hedland, which is about 850 kilometres north of the blowholes where Cleo was last seen. Posters and stickers were placed in almost every business window in the town's main shopping and tourist precincts and community members were also handing out stickers to shoppers. And then a thousand kilometres south in the Perth CBD, Cleo's photo was blown up on the 45 metre high digital tower in Yagan Square, which police also used to plea for information in the disappearance of Jared Ross a couple of years ago when they were reinvestigating. So 
on the giant circular screens, they're, they're seen by thousands of pedestrians and drivers every day driving through the CBD or passing through. So they were flashing up images of her missing sleeping bag and her pink onesie that she was last seen wearing. And yeah, there were also posters hung off the high rise building on William Street. Um, businesses in Exmouth and Carrasa had also placed Cleo's missing person posters in their shop windows and around the town. The whole state was saturated with these posters. In the Exmouth town centre and the local supermarkets, the posters actually featured a QR code. And when you scanned it, it directed people to a Facebook group, Bring Cleo Smith Home, which had more than 55,000 members. It wasn't affiliated with the police or offering updates from the investigation or anything like that, but it was more of a support group and people just all chipping in trying to contribute to the search in any way they could, whether that be by printing off posters or supplying food to the searchers or doing anything they could in the community to support the family as well. And, yeah, there was a hashtag being used as well on social media, bring Cleo Smith home. The way people came together was staggering as it was unfolding. And we know Eddie Smith told us in episode four that the locals particularly, despite all of this groundwork and legwork that everyone was doing, they were starting to feel so incredibly frustrated by the lack of progress. I think they've moved around. I think people are fairly despondent. Uh, They've been very fully supportive of the family, which they should be, and uh, probably... Uh, a little bit depressed in a lot of ways, I think. You know, there's a lot of people I've found in tears at, at, at what's happened. Mick, you live a thousand kilometres away in Collie, where you grew up, you served as a Member of Parliament for 20 years. Did Cleo's disappearance strike a raw nerve in your town? Oh, I certainly did. You know, uh, even personally, you know, you, you flash back to what happened in Collie, uh, but also... You know, thinking about the size of that little girl being a father and a grandfather, you certainly relate to her very quickly. And thinking back to what happened with Lisa Mott's disappearance in Collie, and for those who don't know the story, uh, Lisa Mott, we mentioned earlier, was 12 when she vanished off the streets of Collie. She was last seen getting into a yellow panel van and never seen again. Looking at how things were unfolding at the blowholes and how things were unfolding in Carnarvon, did those first weeks bring back what the first weeks in Collie were like? And did people come together eventually in that same way? I mean, do you remember that sense of desperation? Did it get to that sort of fever pitch, I guess? Probably not to the fever pitch as such, but certainly concerns about uh, where their own children were. Uh, and, of course, then the gossip that comes out of that about that person over there is a shady character and I've seen this bloke digging a garden and, all those sort of things that uh, happen when people get under a stress, to say the least, about someone missing. Brianna, you spent many hours talking to locals in your time in Carnarvon. What kind of things were you hearing in this state of panic? Yeah, so before police packed up the land search, the town was really united and one and supportive of the parents and I guess maybe they really did think she just wandered off, but then when police packed up the land search, left the blowholes and said it's turning into a suspected abduction, that's when the town just switched. They started pointing out people going, oh, it could have been this person, could have been this person. Like, um, It's a very segregated kind of town in a sense, and they started pointing out different areas of where she could be and stuff, and it, it became really 
toxic and almost scary in a way how quickly these people turned. The difference, I think, in the time factor there is, uh, you know, Facebook, which is an absolute disaster when these types of things happen because people can say anything without any justification. And that's what I've seen in the Carnarvon bit as well. But in Collier, it was just the rumour mill that went round and round. So it was pretty awful, to say the least, what people can put out there. Yeah, 100%. And they had Facebook groups going around of conspiracy groups of where's Cleo and Cleo's conspiracy discussion, I think, was the main Facebook page. And it was just people going through news clips, taking stuff out, accusing the parents, tagging other people in the Carnarvon community in it, going, where were you at the time she disappeared? Like, you weren't here, you haven't spoken to police, it could have been you. And then private investigators started to come up to the town and accuse locals that they were interviewing as well. And it just, it was, yeah, Yeah. terrifying. (laughs) Mick, you spoke up at the time and you actually urged people not to get caught up in gossip in Cleo's case and to focus on police. Obviously, you realised that the armchair detectives thought that they'd solved the case. So did that bring back those memories of where people started to turn on each other? Oh, it did. And uh, people were building a new shed and they put a concrete floor in and, you know, people saying, oh, I wonder what's under that. And those sort of things that, you know, neighbour against neighbour and something that, some human nature about it, but it's bloody awful to say the least. Mm-hmm. But the other thing it has, even this week, I've received a letter from a lady who's had concerns about Lisa Mott and about how the inquiry was done, but has her theories. So the Cleo one has certainly brought back those memories back into the town. I mean, you can only imagine that this is born from a place of fear. It's been 40 years since Lisa disappeared and Lisa's mum, Marion, is now in her 70s. I guess there would have been a genuine concern that that's the fate that Cleo's parents could have been facing. Well, certainly, certainly. And uh, after the issue about being in the water or lost was gone, that's when it really, I think, hit home to people and uh Unfortunately, there's also some disbelievers out there, but congratulations to the police, Musk, and the uh, volunteers in that area. It is extraordinary outcome. As we mentioned before, the million-dollar reward was offered, and we know that a million dollars was also offered for Lisa Mott, and we obviously hope that one day her family gets closure. But in Carnarvon, that reward did spark a bit of a frenzy. Crime Stoppers has been receiving up to 400 additional calls, tip-offs a day since Cleo's disappearance. The biggest spike came after the WA government announced a $1 million reward for information. I can't stress this enough. Detectives are still calling for vigilance here and across the state. Brianna, you touched on this just a moment ago when you said PIs came into town. There was also bounty hunters. What kind of additional pressures or stress did that bring? Quite a bit to the actual locals of the town. I mean, it's a small town. Everyone knows everyone. By the end of my stint in Carnarvon, I was known by the pub owners and the coffee shop owners and stuff. So you can only imagine having these, I guess, foreigners come into the town and pretty much just accuse people of going, where were you at the time she went missing? Who do you think could have done it? I need leads and stuff. I know at the time they were actually quite media shy, the bounty hunters who were in town. Did you speak to any of them? Yes, I managed to speak to one who chartered a helicopter out to an area where he thought Cleo could potentially be buried. And when I spoke to him, he got really defensive and said, I'm not a bounty hunter. I wasn't out there for Cleo. 
even though he said to the helicopter pilots he was. And, yeah, he was like, I don't know where Cleo is. I've got nothing to do with this. I'm not talking to the media. Well, this is what police had to say about it at the time. We do welcome anyone who can help find Cleo. I will ask that people not put themselves at danger or at risk in doing so. Kristen, Detective Wilde thinks that Cleo is in the state still, and that's partly to do with WA's COVID restrictions, which would make interstate travel very difficult. In an exclusive interview with us on Saturday, October 23, so a week after Cleo went missing, he did tell me that he thought the four-year-old was probably still in WA, and he said that while she could be anywhere, the likelihood of her abductor having crossed the border with her was low, because if they had crossed the border, it would imply that the perpetrator was someone from the eastern state who committed the offence, and when he said it's more likely if she has been abducted, that the offender would have been a local or at least from WA. And he also added that government agencies across the country, as well as police and residents in the border regions, were all on the lookout for Cleo and there had not been any leads or credible sightings in that first week to indicate that she had been taken into state. Well, then on day nine, he also reveals some new information at a press conference in Perth. Superintendent Wilde, who is now, by this time, the boss of Task Force Rodia, which is in charge of investigating Cleo's disappearance, he said at a press conference that they had received new credible information that at about 3am on the morning that Cleo vanished, a car was seen turning south off Blowholes Road headed for Carnarvon. Now, Superintendent Wilde said that Two people who are credible sources, they were travelling for work, had come forward to police. They were travelling together along the northwest coastal highway in the early hours of Saturday, October 16, when they saw a car turn right off Blowholes Road sometime between 3 and 3.30am. They said that uh, the car definitely had its headlights on, but they were unable to provide any more of a description other than it was a passenger vehicle and not a truck. So obviously at that time, they wouldn't have been particularly on the lookout for any vehicles. No one at that stage knew Cleo had been abducted. So that's just what they recalled observing. And police were treating that information really seriously and appealing for whoever was in that vehicle to come forward to police and identify themselves. Were they ever able to give a description of the car? Only that it was a passenger vehicle and not a truck. It had its headlights on. The two people who were travelling that observed this vehicle weren't sure if there was a passenger or whether it was just a driver. So the level of detail was quite low, but they recalled the time and the location quite clearly. Mm, To this day, there's still no clarity on who that car belonged to or who was driving it. Police appealed for the driver of a car to come forward, which was seen near where Cleo went missing. Witnesses driving north towards Caratha spotted the car turning south from Blowholes Road between 3 and 3.30 on the morning she vanished. Xanthi, do you think the remoteness of this case would have made for a difficult investigation? Well, I think the remoteness both helped and hampered this investigation, actually, because what we're seeing is hampering it in terms of less CCTV than you would expect if this happened in a suburban or more city-based environment. Um, There would have been more cars on the road, so they would have had dash cam. All those kind of technological assistance elements would have been more useful, I think, in a different environment. However, I think what 
really helped this particular investigation was the fact that it happened near a really small town with only like 5,000 inhabitants. And I think because everyone in that town knew each other, they had either known or had sight of the family. I think it was basically like having 5,000 extra pairs of eyes and ears. So I think the remoteness initially hampered but ultimately helped find Cleo and bring her home, fortunately, physically, at least unharmed. We saw the extraordinary community response to Cleo's disappearance. Have you seen that before uh, when someone has gone missing from a small town, that there is such a laser focus? Yeah, I think a good example would be the Tyrrell matter. So obviously that happened in Kendall or just outside of Kendall, which is another small town, obviously on the New South Wales coast but it's got that small town feel. Cleo was obviously a resident though which is slightly different scenario. The family lived there whereas William Tyrrell and his foster mum and dad were visiting Kendall but there's still that small town feel. Everyone feels touched by an event like that especially when a child goes missing and I think also the similarities are drawn because we've got those pictures of William and we have pictures of Cleo so you could really humanise that story So, yeah, I think something about child abductions do really focus the public's attention, especially for the locals who feel really connected and engaged with that story and become very involved in wanting to find that child and bringing them home safely. It's sort of that, by the grace of God go I, isn't it? You think, oh my gosh, you can actually imagine or you can't imagine what the families are going through. Yeah, exactly. And I think anyone, whether you've got children or not, I mean, as soon as I heard about the Cleo Smith disappearance, William Tyrrell popped into my mind, Madeleine McCann popped into my mind, and I was was like, oh no, I hope this isn't the next child that vanishes, that we never find out what happened to them. And I'm not saying we won't in either the Tyrrell or the McCann case, but at the moment we don't have answers. Mm. And I think there was that general kind of ripple of fear through the community that another child is gone and fortunately it is rare in Australia but I don't have children but I felt that kind of heart-stopping moment like oh no yeah you know this is another one and I think everyone felt that so yeah I think there is that sense when a child goes that you really sympathize with the family and think what they must be going through not knowing what's happened not knowing why not knowing where their child is it must be torment until they get answers unimaginable. And Detective Rod Wilde, at this point in the investigation, he's heading up the task force and and he reveals that there's no suspects at this stage. But at the same time, he's also loath to delve into offender profiles. What sorts of theories in general would they be exploring? So they would have been looking at a significant number of persons of interest. They would have been looking at the friends and family of the child, that's totally normal. I mean, everyone was very suspicious to start with because obviously they will go hard on the mum and the stepfather in this case because they have to rule them out. So I always say that in an investigation, they will always look at those closest to the victim. And that doesn't mean that any suspicion needs to be levelled at them. It's just part of the investigative process that they have to go through. They would also have been looking at everyone at the campground who'd been there, everyone who knew that they were going to be at that campground. 
friends, family, etc., people who may have overheard them in local shops, you know, as they were leaving town, filling up with fuel, anyone who had knowledge of where Cleo would have been at that time. And also persons with relevant criminal histories, which would have been a significant number of people with crimes against children, violent histories, all of those kind of things. So they wouldn't have wanted to narrow their focus without more information, because the last thing you want to do as an investigator is get tunnel vision, ignore other possible scenarios in favour of, quote, the most likely, and then miss out on those key pieces of information. So it's essential they keep an open mind investigate all of those avenues simultaneously until they have evidence and information to help them narrow their lines of inquiry. Throughout the investigation, we see police go to great pains to say to the public that everything you're seeing is standard procedure and not to read into what they're doing at that point in time, which is exactly what you're saying. One of the things that Shire President Eddie Smith mentioned was that he was taking calls from clairvoyance, and we do hear this Mm. when there are missing persons. What kind of weight does police add to psychics and what mediums have to say? Well, I mean, I can't talk for the police in this particular investigation. I have spoken to a number of officers over the years about psychics and clairvoyance, however, because apart from anything, when I make commentary in the media about some of these high profile cases, a lot of them then contact me too. So, yeah, I do have contact with individuals of this nature and I know how much stock I put in that information, which is basically none. Um, My thought process is that if a clairvoyant or a psychic actually comes up with anything that's going to be of value, then I would be very suspicious of that person. And not because they've got that from another entity. I would be thinking they have some practical reason for knowing this. So I've never spoken to a police officer who has been given viable information by a psychic or a clairvoyant. So whilst They obviously have to take information and triage it and treat it as they would from anybody. They are very cautious when it comes to those types of, I'm going to call it evidence and I'm putting it in like a little (laughs) Because, yeah, it's inevitable in these high profile cases that these individuals will contact family members and and others involved. And uh, I find it frustrating. You can probably hear that in my voice because Mm. I think often it gives family hope you know, they get sent out to all of these different locations and these clairvoyants are saying, oh, you'll find some information or evidence here. And ultimately it comes to nothing. And I didn't think it's just really hard for families. They feel they have to follow these things up and ultimately they're disappointed. And I've never seen any positive outcome from those kind of interventions. And I've never heard a police officer tell me that they have either. No, that's right. What we have heard is we've heard from families who have said clairvoyance and mediums have sent them on wild goose chases and in some cases almost driven them mad. Yes, and we've talked about the Claremont killings before and I know that that was a major issue in that case because if you're contacted by somebody as a family member and you're desperate for answers, you may be highly sceptical But you also don't want to ignore it just in case there's something in it. And you end up literally going on all these wild goose chases and then another disappointment. So that emotional roller coaster that these individuals take family on. And I find that quite offensive, really. If they know where the evidence is, you know what? Go and (laughs) either photograph the evidence or demonstrate to the police that the evidence is there and let them collect it. But stop torturing the families with dead ends that 
ultimately never progress these cases in my experience. In these cases, it often appears as though police are walking a tightrope between what they make public and what they withhold from the public. How important is it for them to get that balance right? Yeah, it's essential. And we've seen different media strategies played out in different cases. And I think what is clear now is that the police include the media as part of their investigative toolkit so they understand the power of the media and that it needs to be leveraged to advantage of the investigation. I don't mean police advantage, I mean to make sure that the messages are going out to the public at the right time, that it's the right message, that it's given in the right way, but also they can use that to put pressure on persons of interest, for example, if they're trying to do that. So they can use it to assist in their investigation. And certainly I think that played out with the Cleo Smith investigation. The way the information was released seemed very strategic, very targeted. The reward being announced very early on, for example, was obviously part of that broader strategy to gain attention from the public, but also information. So, yeah, I think that's now part of the investigative structure And I think that's a really positive thing. Obviously, in this case, it led to a great result with great engagement with the public, partly through that process. Yeah, you mentioned Claremont a little earlier, and it does make me think back to Claremont, which we spoke about in another podcast. And what we did find out through the course of that nine-month trial into those Claremont killings was that police had actually withheld information back at the time in the late 1990s and some of that was CCTV vision that didn't come out till 10 years later. Some of it was this link between police looking at Telstra cars, whereas the public was unaware of that. We knew they were looking at taxi drivers, but not Telstra cars. Do you think police have learnt from cases like that and have found that better balance and know what does need to be divulged? Well, I think certainly they've learnt about media strategy but remember we're always viewing these cases through the lens of a crystal ball and we say well maybe if they've released that information to the public they may have got key information well we just don't know that in any particular scenario because it didn't happen but certainly I think that lessons have been learned about media strategy and we mentioned Marilyn McCann earlier and I think not only the police media strategy but the family media strategy too so in the McCann case Madeline's parents kept Madeline on the front page for months and that was really important because sadly we still don't know what happened to Madeline but it was clear to me that they knew that the only way they were likely to get answers was if she was in people's minds as soon as she slipped to page three or eight or off the news entirely then people were going to forget her Mm. they had to keep her front and center of people's attention So I think that was very clever of them. And I think that possibly that strategy was also played out with the Cleo Smith case in that the mother was active on Instagram, lots of photos of Cleo, keeping her in the public eye. And I don't know, but from the outside, knowing how some of this works, I wouldn't be surprised if that was something she was advised to do by WA police to assist them in their investigation as well. So I certainly think lessons are being learned, absolutely. So we've now got this mystery car. Forensics start collecting CCTV from houses and businesses that may have been able to capture it on camera. Hardcore volunteers from the homicide, gang crime, drugs and firearms squads are all in Carnarvon. Forensics today 
collected CCTV from a home on the northwest coastal highway. Kristen, we also know that back in Perth, forensics are examining the family tent. There's some other exhibits that have been collected from the scene. But how much information or how little information are they releasing at this point? Yeah, Nat, they're not releasing very much at all. Police were very tight-lipped about other evidence that they collected and whether things like DNA or fingerprints had been identified from Cleo's family tent. The only detail that police publicly revealed was that the tent zip had been opened to a height Cleo could not have reached. However, after Cleo was found, Paige Taylor from the Australian newspaper revealed that during the investigation, locals had come to believe that police had a footprint from the family's campsite that they had considered highly significant. Now, police haven't confirmed this publicly, but Paige reported that police had been questioning people whose mobile phones had been detected in the area about their shoes. And one woman who was questioned twice by police told the Australian that even though police said it was a random questionnaire, it did feel more like an interrogation because her phone had been detected on the phone towers over that evening of October 16 and that police had asked this woman what size her shoes were and what sort of shoes she had and that sort of thing. So I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, and just adding to that, you could definitely feel a dark cloud hanging over the small town at this time and I guess everyone who was getting interviewed or giving statements to police also felt like they were suspects or being interrogated and not in a sense where they were complaining. They understood that they had to do it. But the helicopter pilot, David Arman, he was one of the first people up in the sky and when he gave his statement to police, they took his fingerprints, they took photos of his number plate and he said, oh, I felt like I was a suspect. But, I mean, he knew he had to do it. Brianna, the campsite search is now over, but holidaymakers are still being urged to keep on the lookout and what have you. The next day, police and forensics return to the family home. What do you see happening on the second day? So, again, they just focused on the perimeter of the home. They didn't go inside. They sprayed the fence line some more, took more photos I believe they went through rubbish and moved some stuff around in their backyard, but they were pretty tight-lipped on what they were doing. All we were told is it's standard protocol and the family are not suspects. Kristen, from what you know with the investigations you've done, would police also likely be collecting DNA from family members? Yeah, definitely. So I've seen in previous child abduction cases and similar investigations that police would always be taking the victim's DNA from the home, so collecting items that would have Cleo's DNA on it, but also taking DNA from her parents and other family members. And that could just be if they need it later on in the investigation as part of an elimination process or also in the very worst scenario to identify any victim's remains. So, for example, when schoolboy Jared Ross was abducted during a family holiday at Rockingham back in 1997, police forensically examined his family's home up in Newman in the Pilbara, even though that wasn't where he was abducted from. And when we filmed our documentary at the West in 2019, The Boy in the Blue Cap, about Jared's abduction and murder, Jared's sister Beth, who was only young at the time, she said that she remembered when they returned to Newman, the police had been in the house and there were lots of dust marks from where they were doing fingerprints and things like that. So it was all a bit surreal. And I spoke to Daniel Morecambe's parents who said that police didn't forensically examine their house or car, but 
they did look at Daniel's bedroom and they took away his toothbrush and his hat, his cap for DNA testing. Daniel's parents, Bruce and Denise, also provided a saliva sample at the time to police and much later police requested a blood sample. They also took Bruce's fingerprints early on. Now, that was back in 2003 and police in this case would have been implementing, you know, a lot of lessons that have been learned since then which is why their handling of this investigation is now being considered around the world as the gold standard of policing or detective work. So what police were saying when the forensics were at Cleo's family house in South Carnarvon was absolutely correct. They were examining the perimeter and planning to examine inside the house just to cover off all bases. And Superintendent Wilde had said to me that it was predominantly to see if there had been any trespass or things like that but nothing of interest had come from it. But this was all just standard procedure and a part of thoroughness in an investigation like this. Brianna, on Sunday, beachgoers returned to the blowholes. Did you head out there to see what was happening and how many people were out there? Yeah, so we went out in the morning because that's more peak hour for snorkeling and stuff. The actual campsite was a ghost town. People were really respectful and stayed back. And for quite a while after, no one actually pitched a tent in the area where the Smith family were staying. The actual blowhole site was mainly tourists, I guess, travelling from north or south, who were a bit confused by why all the police were there and stuff. So we had to tell them, like, oh, this is what's happened. And then they became a bit more cautious, kind of stopped taking photos, packed up soon after. But there were still people they're swimming, having a good time. Not so many locals, though. They were pretty respectful and stayed back. It was more people just travelling through the area. Mick, how long did it take for Collie to recover from the impact of Lisa Mott's disappearance? Well, I don't think they ever recovered totally. You know, as I say, you know, just we're getting a letter from a lady rehashing or, or reviewing what happened to Lisa Mott. So, you know, all those years ago, and it's still in people's minds, you know, just sometimes it like the Cleo issue, jog that memory, and uh, people think there should be closure in Lisa Mott's case as well. Shire President in Carnarvon, Eddie Smith, said that it felt like Carnarvon had lost its innocence. Is that how you would have described it for Collie? Certainly, certainly. That, that's something you know, where you know, children weren't playing in the street anymore uh, like they used to, you know, kicking the footy and those sort of things. That, uh, and, you know, parents were... Uh, dropping off and picking up kids where previously they'd ride their push bikes home or walk home in groups and those sort of things. That that was certainly a big change within the community. Brianna, on Sunday night there was a church vigil held. Did you go along to that? Yeah, so media was allowed. We respectfully stayed outside and only had, I think, two cameras inside. The family and friends aren't quite religious, so they didn't show up, but it was just more for the town to kind of show their support and rally behind the family. And all different faiths came to the vigil. It wasn't necessarily Catholic or Christian. And it was lovely to see people lit candles, mothers were holding their children, and it was just a sense of power, I guess, to tell the Smith family that they're not alone. Kristen, on day 10, the Premier of Western Australia begs whoever has Cleo to give her back to her parents. On the same day, Cleo's parents make another social media plea, don't they? Yeah, Nat. So on Monday, October 25, Ellie and Jake both posted pictures to Instagram calling Cleo best big sister ever and saying we all need her home. So Ellie made the emotional plea for Cleo's return, sharing a heartbreaking photo of Cleo with her baby sister Isla. And she shared that Instagram stories. 
also, along with an image of the missing poster offering the $1 million reward for information and the words, we all need her home, where are you, baby, before calling her the best big sister ever. So it was just gut-wrenching. And then Cleo's stepfather, Jake, who hadn't posted anything on social media up until this point, also posted about Cleo's disappearance for the first time, sharing an image of the missing persons poster and the $1 million reward to his Instagram story. And in the days that follow, Ellie and Jake give their second television interview to Channel 7. Here's just a little bit of that. I love you. We miss you and we want you home. Again, it was gut-wrenching and unimaginable what that family was going through. Xanthi, Brianna, Mick, thanks for sharing your experience with us today and join Kristen and myself for episode five when we're going to cross to the UK where Cleo's disappearance is also dominating primetime news. If you'd like to know more about this extraordinary case and how it unfolded, head to thewest.com.au forward slash Cleo. My Name is Cleo is recorded in the studios of the West Australian newspaper. This podcast is produced and edited by Kate Ryan and hosted by executive producer Natalie Bongiolo. Audio clippings provided by Channel 7 and WA Police. Listener.